Can I start my sermon this morning by saying this piece of fantastic news is that Jesus is still on the throne. He is still king. Yahweh is still the divine, preeminent, uncreated, glorious father in whom has made us sons and daughters, kings and priests, heirs in a kingdom much bigger than the world's kingdom. You know, it's so important at the moment that we remind ourselves of that daily. We remind ourselves of that every day. A couple of weeks back, I got into the habit of waking up, saying hello, good morning to my wife, give me a kiss, and then going on my phone and just getting the morning update from the interwebs. We live in a time right now that you can get so caught up in the understanding of this world. You can get so caught up taking in content after content after content. And I've stood here week in and week out and told you, please, please, please keep your eyes on Jesus. And I know that that becomes more and more difficult the more and more information that we take in, the more and more we listen to. But we have the key to turning it all off. If your Jesus understanding tank is empty, but your YouTube video tank is beyond full, you need to swap the messages. And I just want to explain this morning that Jesus is still the king. No matter how dark this world gets, Jesus is still the king. No matter if you're, you've had the vaccine, you haven't had the vaccine, you've been to the protest, you haven't been to the protest, you've wanted to go to the protest but you couldn't because you're afraid, or you're, you're too scared. If you think the pro- protests are vile and killing people, if you think the whole thing is a scam, or if you think the whole thing is terrifying and killing thousands of people, all of that to say Jesus is still king and he still sits on the throne. It's really that simple. That when I look at this book, when I read through this, the message that I see every day is that Jesus is king. I see trouble after trouble, pain and torment after torment. And then the end of it says, but, but there's a king enthroned. But Yahweh is great. A people, a mass people get taken, get taken by threat of death to Babylon to become slaves, to be tormented and fed next to nothing, to work and to break all the commandments that they were given as a people. And yet they come out saying, yet Yahweh is the one I serve and worship. See, when we set our eyes to something, it becomes our message. The reason that this is called the gospel is because it means good news. So I want to ask you today, what has become your gospel? What's your news? What are you sprouting? What are you talking about the most? Because unfortunately, in our psyche, in our subconscious, that becomes what's most important to us. That becomes what we talk about more and more and more. And what tends to happen is what we talk about, those are what become our clan and our people. Our group, our people, our clan, our family are not determined by the stance on the current pandemic or political stance. If you've got Christian brothers and sisters and you're no longer talking to them because of your political stance, I want to ask you to reevaluate. I want to ask you to get on your knees 
and ask God to give you grace for those people that you've cut off. Unity is not founded in like-minded people. It's founded in the Spirit of God. We are all friends and family in this room because of one person, Jesus. What he did makes Tim and I brothers. Unlikely as that may be, it makes us brothers. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, until we obtain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The unification by which makes us brothers and sisters, family, one unit, is our inness. That's not a word, I just made it up. In homerness of Jesus. That we all together are in him and he in us. What makes Tim my brother is that he resides in Christ and Christ resides in him just like I reside in Christ and Christ resides in me. That's what the kingdom means. That's why we say brother because Christ is in him and Christ is in me. So what's my good news? What's my gospel? Is that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He died, he rose again, he ascended and he has a plan to consummate the ages. That's the good news. So if I'm flipping through things I want to tell my friends, I get to the place where I go, what's most important to me? I want to ask you another question that I did last week for you to ponder and to talk with your friends and your family. Are you as passionate about advancing the kingdom as you are about advancing your political and pandemic rhetoric? Are you as passionate about advancing the kingdom as you are about advancing your political and pandemic rhetoric? If not, why not? We have to ask ourselves this question. If you will not go to war to advance the kingdom, why would you go to war for anything else? See, we become soldiers in the kingdom of God. And can I tell you, darkness has been trying to push back the light since the beginning of time. Since that moment in the garden, darkness has always been here. The the story's been the same. It's never changed. Darkness wants to try to overtake light. But the sons and daughter of light, you and I, born and created from the heavens, from the earth, become the light that pushes back the darkness. The point, the most important thing we can do as kingdom people in God, as image bearers of of Christ, is advance the light. That's our job. That's who we're called to be. That's our position. I've been in conversations during the week where I've had to bite my tongue because I knew if I opened it, they would remove me from the conversation. But I waited my time. At the very end, I got to speak and I got to reveal Christ. But if I opened my mouth too early, I would have lost my voice and Christ would have not been proclaimed in the conversation. That's the job. We hold a candle and we think, when can I put this in there? When can I put this into the dark room? I don't want them to close the door because I want to run in there with this light. That's what we're called to be. I just want you to ponder on that. I'm not saying don't go and, and talk to people. Don't express how you're feeling, what you're thinking. But I just want to 
get you to think, am I advancing the kingdom or am I advancing something else? What's my gospel? What is the good news that I'm going to proclaim? Am I in a realm where I am releasing life or am I continually perpetuating the cycle of death in the world? That's the question to ask. Which leads me into somewhat of a segue into what I feel God's been revealing to me during the week. Actually, a few weeks ago, because I've had this sermon for quite a while now. I was listening, so everything in my notes that says this week, last week, is all confusing. So I don't remember timeline anymore. I lost the plot there. But I was listening to a podcast at some point, a podcast called um, Redmond and Riddle, Matt Redmond and Jeremy Riddle, talking about worship. And they said something that really provoked thought in me and challenged me. And they were talking about the the preeminence, sorry, the eminence and the transcendence of God. Don't worry, I'm going to break down the words in a minute. And it's not a very teacher sermon this morning. I want to just bring us some truth in what seems to be a very complicated time of lies. They were speaking about this this difference between the the, the far-off God and the close-in God, and that when we come into worship, the power of what worship means, that we get to stand in this place and enter into a throne room, come into the kingdom place with God. I spoke a few a few weeks back about Malachi and how sometimes we get caught in a place where we bring the the whatever we have left of the week to God. We bring the the scraps of the sacrifice. And that Malachi is challenging us in that to actually bring the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of our week, to the start of the week we bring all to him. We don't wait to the very end. I then spoke a few weeks after about Revelation 22 that says that that he who sits on the throne is the Alpha and the Omega. He brings water to all those who thirst, but also that he brings a lake of fire to those who do not obey him. And it seems to be in the kingdom what we, what we understand, this thing that I've explained before we call, it, call it a truth intention, that there's one thing that seems to be true, but then there's something else that the Bible also says is true, which seems to be contradictory to the first. But that God operates in these truths and tensions throughout the scriptures. He uses things that say one thing that also build another, but on the surface it looks like they contradict each other. For example, we can be sons and daughters of Christ, but we can also be the bride of Christ, right? Are we sons and daughters or are we the bride, right? Are we in Christ or are we the bride of Christ married to him? Right? Both of these things are true, yet they carry a a understanding of the, the, the facet of an unmeasurable God, right? We can't quite comprehend just how big God is. So when he says things to our own little brain, it, it doesn't compute or make sense. But I believe that when we come into the fullness when we come into the fullness of eternity, that we actually begin to see and understand some of the things that God is saying. He uses these analogies that are used to explain a particular facet of God's nature. So they're not, they're not working against each other, rather they're working with each other. Does that make sense? And the one that I want to I focus on this morning is the imminence and transcendence of God. Imminence being close to, manifested in this world, right? Something we can feel, touch, experience, be with. There's also then the transcendence, right, which is far off, highly exalted, can't quite reach place, right? And God draws this picture all throughout the scriptures that God is both close to us 
and in us and with us. But there's also there's also this this sort of far off distance understanding of God. And what happens when people often when they come to to a charismatic or a Pentecostal church out of a reformed church, they say, I never knew a relationship with God like this. Because often the, the reformers, the, the Baptist Pentecostals, even the um, fancy one with big steeples, Catholics, thank you, they, they have this, this distance, right? This, this God up there who looks down on the people. Yet when we read the scriptures and we see Jesus, he came down to be with us one-to-one. It was a personal relationship. But that doesn't forego or do away with the powerful God who rules and reigns. So we have to understand both, right? Moses being called up the mountain to Mount Sinai to meet with God. That would have been an amazing invitation to have gotten. Yet when he gets to the top, he probably would have thought, well, he wouldn't have thought, but we would have thought, I'm going to run in the, into the arms of, of Daddy God, right? I'm going to just embrace him with a hug. And when he gets close, the Father says, you can peer at me through a rock. That's the best I can do. So there's this distance, right? There's this, this power, this, this holiness, this reverence that he says, Moses, my son, come up the mountain and meet with me, but I'm going to see you at a distance through a glimpse in a rock. See, we don't quite understand that there's this amazing, we, we sing songs often, God, come into the room and meet us. But what that could mean for all of us is that we drop dead because his power and his glory is such that we can't handle in this body to be in that place. Right? The, the high priests, once a year, when they would go into the Holy of Holies, you can just imagine what would have taken place. They cleansed themselves, they brought sacrifices, and they come to the tent ready to go in, and they start tying a rope around their stomach. Because if they drop dead, they need someone to pull them out. Like We've kind of forgotten this power this authority that God carries, where they understood I get to go in to the Holy of Holies and meet Yahweh God. I get to be in the presence of greatness. But what's the risk? His glory could kill me. So sometimes we come in, especially in the contemporary Western world, in our in our Pentecostal charismatic churches, and we walk in like, like proud teenagers, I get to be with God. And we sit on our seat and say, come and meet with me. But we haven't counted the cost of what it really means to sit before Yahweh God, creator of the universe. We haven't actually understood what it takes to be in a place where his glory is such that, Lord, I don't want to do anything wrong in this place because your glory is so good. But you see what happens is if we take that too far and we lean too much into that, we build this dictator God that, that never allows us in, that has no relationship, and we live in this weird place of fear because we've lent too far to the transcendence and we've not understood the eminence of God where he will meet with us face to face. And I think the most beautiful picture, if you've got a Bible with you, you want to jump to Luke 7. The most beautiful picture of this for me Chapter 7, verse 36 to start with. I'm so sorry, Edie. I told you that I would write all these down and I didn't. I apologize. (laughs) What a lady, hey? 
Luke chapter 7. I think there's this beautiful picture that, that is painted in this verse that of this transcendence yet imminence of Christ. Jesus, he's in one of the Pharisees' house and he's, he's lounged at the table. He's sitting down and he's enjoying what we could take to be a meal. And it says that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Luke 7, 39, chapter 39, verse 37 now. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclined at the table in the Pharisee's house, poured an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited this him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them would love, will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, from which he has cancelled a larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman broke all of the laws in that place to meet face to face with Jesus. But what I find fascinating about this verse is that she came in with expensive oil. She came in with a plan to meet Jesus. She heard that he was in the town reclining at the table. She did everything unto death to get to him. And when she got to him, she fell down to her knees and she worshipped his feet. She fell down to her knees and she worshipped his feet. She didn't run up to him and hug him and tell him all the problems. Jesus, I have all these things you need to help me with. I've got this problem and that problem. I've been broken my whole life. I need help. You need to help me. She went into the room and she realized of whom she was standing in front of. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And she fell to her knees and she worshipped his feet. I find it interesting that Jesus says, when he, when he says to, uh, to, to Simon, he says, she, you didn't oil my head and you didn't wash my feet. Yet she's come into the room and she's washed my feet and she's oiled my feet. See, the lady knew right then the, the worthy and the holiness that he deserved and she worshipped him in that place. I think sometimes one of the biggest detriments to us as Christians that we've learned is this 
piousness that because we're children of God, we get to run around and demand things from him. And we fail to remember who he is in that moment of glory and honor. She worshipped his feet and in that place he brought her into fullness. She fell and worshipped him for who he was. The other picture that we see time and time, and I've I've spoke about this quite a bit because I, I just love this picture. I love the way that John paints such an amazing picture of his love for Jesus, right? Jesus sees him as the disciple in which he loves. He nestles into his breast when they recline at the table. He was leaning on his chest. There was an affection of brotherly love. There was an affection of he is who he says he is and I love him and I get to hug him. That's the imminent, close relationship with Jesus that John has. But then in Revelations 1, Verse 17 to 18, when John is on the Isle of Patmos and he has this vision, he comes into the vision and he sees Jesus as a voice that was speaking to him. In the midst of landstands, he sees one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wood, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like a roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, case, sorry, from his mouth, case a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when he saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. John knew who Jesus was. He was a friend. I don't know if any of you have ever seen a friend that you haven't seen for a very long time. There's this moment where you run and you just grab each other and you're so excited to see this friend that you haven't seen for so long and you kind of do this awkward, weird, like maybe some of you don't do this, but like a weird cry hug, like sort of, way too long a hug because you're just excited to see your friend again. You're excited to be in the presence of the, of the guy you knew so well or the girl you knew so well. When John sees Jesus, he can't do that because he's absolutely perplexed by his glory. You see, there was an imminence when John was with Jesus. There was a closeness. Yet there is also this fire and this power and this glory that separates him in a moment where he says, John, don't forget who I am. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you have come into my presence in my throne room. And there is a position by which you enter this place. And it's in worth, worthy, worthy. John falls at his face as if dead. He collapses before him, face first, poof, onto the floor in worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. See, we forget sometimes that he still is the Holy One, enthroned, worthy and glory. As much issue as I, I have with some of the practices and theologies of, of the Catholic Church, I always remember when I was at school, I, I went to a Catholic school and I'll never ever forget something that that changed the way I understood the holiness of God. We would be out in the playground and you know, as teenagers mucking around, wrestling each other, grubby being in school clothes all day and playing football. And when we had to go into to mass, we'd have to do like afternoon mass from time to time. You'd be loud and obnoxious and grubby 
and you'd walk through the door and without a teacher or anybody else telling you to go silent, everyone would go silent. And you'd whisper, even if nothing was on. You go into a, a, a school assembly hall and it's loud until someone gets up and tells you to shush, except for when you walked into Mass. There was this knowing of holiness and reverence, a silence. And I remember I was on the, the music team, so I'd have to go and play drums for all the masses and meet the principal there. And we'd go in hours before, which was a nightmare. But I remember sitting, we were waiting one day, and I walked into the church on my own because I had to set the drum kit up, and I'd set it up pretty quickly. And I was just sitting on my own in this silence. And I remember feeling the power of God and the reverence of just feeling like he created the universe. And it was pretty awkward because I hid my faith quite a bit while I was at high school because I didn't want to have to deal with some of the conversations, especially when I was early in high school. I remember sitting there and tears running down my face and going, I, I can't stop this feeling of glory that I see and I feel about how big my God is. And I think that at times we've misunderstood that, yes, he is Daddy God. And yes, you do get to sit on his lap. And yes, you do get to have the warm embrace of a father. But at the same time, he is the fiery God with words of rushing water that comes out of his mouth, with eyes like fire and a tongue like a two-edged sword. We can't forget the power and majesty and mighty glory that God's breast in, while at the same time understanding the sweet tenderness of a loving father. See, if we swing the pendulum too far either side, we enter into a, a, a terrible place. We go too far on the love, grace, gushy side and we become disempowered people. We go too far on the almighty God is in charge of everything and he will smite thee when thee needs to be smitened. And we enter into error on that side. There's this beautiful middle that allows us to understand he loves me when I stuff up and I get it wrong. But man, I am so, so want to do what he's asking me to do because there's this glory that I understand is so powerful. There is this moment of his, his beauty that I just want to be on the right side of. So when we find this line, this beautiful line, we understand when it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when it says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We have to approach the heavenly kingdom of God with reverence in our heart. Remembering God, I get to come in to your glorious place. I get to come and worship you, O Holy One. I've got a list of things that's going wrong in my world that I'd love to talk to you about, but I don't forget the way in which I approach your kingdom, the way in which I approach your throne, 
that I do it remembering you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I will submit myself. I will take off my shoes. I will clean myself. I will come into that place because you are holy and you are worthy. We'll get to my list if you say so. But for now, I just want to worship you. Be careful with your words, Ecclesiastes tells us. Be careful that your words be few. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down to pray and I've prayed in tongues and prayed in tongues and then I've started to think through what I wanted to pray for and become overwhelmed with the things that are going wrong. Overwhelmed. Do I start in Cuba, Afghanistan, Melbourne, Sydney, my family issues? my marriage, my kids, where do I start? And I've sat there and thought, Lord, there's too much. I don't have enough time in the day to pray for the things that are going wrong. I don't have enough understanding of the mess that's before me to articulate every little thing that's wrong. And God says, then be still in my presence and I will give you the words you need. Be still in my presence. The amount of times I've entered into a a time of prayer and said nothing, of late has been, I can't count them on one hand. I go in, I'm going to pray for this. Please pray for Afghanistan. So I come in thinking, Lord, I'm going to pray. I'm going to break down this thing. And I sit down to pray. And I'm like, where do I start? God, it's too dark. It's too dark. And he says, be still in my presence. Let your words be few. Do not do what the fools do and speak because you feel like you need to fill the space. I know what's going on and I know your heart to see it resolved. So be still in my presence. And I will reveal the heart of the Father to the things that need revealing. When we want to fight on our own behalf, we fight so hard and go nowhere. But when we submit ourselves in the stillness, in the presence of God, entering into his throne room with the holiness in which he carries, all the things that are not holy will fade away and be destroyed by the presence of God, by his kingdom, by his glory, by his who he is and what he's done. I don't have to have the brilliant brilliant words. I don't have to be articulate. I don't have to know what to say when I carry the kingdom of God. The presence of him will push back and and silence the things of darkness. When we learn how to be silent in his presence and, and do as he asks us to do, we learn how to push back the gates of hell without doing anything but just submitting ourselves to him submitting ourselves to what he wants us to submit to. Romans 11.22 says this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Note then the kindness and the severity of God toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. This is a reminder that God operates in both kindness and severity. People that have done me wrong, I don't have to go and sort them out. God will do that. I just keep saying, Lord, where are you positioning me? 
Let me stay in your kindness. I'll let you worry about the severity by which they're going to have to answer for those things. How do I stay in your kindness? How do I operate in your fruitfulness? I don't want to worry about those who have said or done things wrong to me. I'm okay for them to stay over there and I'll stay here and keep acting in your kindness. I don't need to go and bring them to justice. You will bring them to justice. God operates in both. And I want to finish with this. If you've got a Bible, and you want to open it to Philippians 2, chapter 2, 12 to 18. And I want to, I want to finish this with this because I want to I want to tell you that if you're if you're struggling at the moment to find hope and joy and peace, if you're struggling at the moment to to understand how we move forward in a time like we're in. If you've got friends who are saying things to you that aren't helpful, if you're in constant conversations, you feel lost and confused with a barrage of information, with a barrage of am I a Christian or not a Christian? Am I this, that or the other? I want you to use this verse. God was screaming at me during last week and into this week to read Philippians and I was reading through Mark and sort of kept saying I'll get to Philippians when I finish Mark and I woke up one morning with this urgency on my heart so I had to put my study of Mark on pause because of what I wanted to do and go and read Philippians you know reading through it I've been so challenged and so challenged and so challenged that this is where we sit today this is what God is giving us a call to a people to operate. But Philippians 2, chapter uh, verse 12 to 18, is what really jumped out at me. And on my notes, I've entitled this, Where to from here? Where do we go from here? Where do we go from the mess of the place that we stand in, from the, the, the tirade of information and, and standing point? Where, where do I go from here? And I believe God is saying, Philippians 2, 12 to 18, it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. How do I apply that to today? Very simply like this. If you have a relationship with God and you talk to him and he reveals in you things to do, then do them with all that you have. And, and if or more like when 
persecution comes from you standing on who God is asking you to be, then be glad and rejoice, my brother, for you are doing the things that God has asked you to do. Listen, if you are feeling like I don't know what to do in this time, I feel like God's telling me one thing and I feel peace in one area, then operate in that area. Nothing else will bring you satisfaction or peace or joy in this time. You can apply whatever whatever scenario you want. Whatever scenario you think this applies to. I'm not going to list potential scenarios. I'm sure all of you in your head have a scenario that this applies to. But if you are honest with yourself, and I mean honest with yourself, and you have been to the Father and asked, how do I operate in this time and in this place, and he has revealed something to you, then act on it with all that you are. And if you get persecuted, may it be with gladness and joy that you are doing what the Father has released you to do. But above all else, he says this, among a crooked and twisted generation, shine as lights in the world. Whatever you do, whatever God is revealing you to do in this time and to stand on in this moment, do it as lights in the world amongst a crooked generation. I want to tell you, we are in the midst of a crooked generation. We are in the midst of a crooked generation. So what am I supposed to do then? Act as children of God without blemish and shine as lights in the world. Our job in this time and in this era is not to carry a particular stance on particular subjects. It's to stand in a place that says, God has asked me to be the light in this dark place and I am going to be there. But what if you get persecuted? Then I'll do it with gladness and joy, my brother. Because God has asked me to be. Because God has asked me to be. When we stand as a people of God, in the places he's asked us to be, strategic places he's asked us to be, we will see the powers of darkness become dismantled. But I need Tim as much as Tim needs me. I talked about last week. We get, go and do the place he's asked you to do and do it with all that you have and judge not. We need both the the imminence, the powerful, sorry, the imminence, the close working relationship with Christ. But we also need the transcendence, power, glory, mighty God that we stand in with. When we come into his presence, when we come into that time, we remember the majesty. We remember the holiness, the power, the glory in which he carries. And it's that power that pushes back darkness. It's that power we stand in. It's that power we operate in. Is that okay? Does everyone understand? Does anyone have any questions? I don't normally do this. I'm happy to answer questions if someone has a question at the risk of it getting a bit left or right. No? There's no wrong questions. No? No one? Fantastic. Why don't we stand? Let's pray. Jesus, 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 God. Lord, I pray for all of us this week as we go from here, Lord, that we would press in to your glory and power. God, that we would stretch out 
and seek the kingdom like we've never sought before. Lord, may there be a change in our hearts. May there be a realigning in our flesh to search for you, to chase you. God, may it be like when we first got saved with this desire in our hearts and this passion in our heart to know you more, to see you more. But God, may we never forget the glory in which you carry. Hallowed be your name, the King on high, Yahweh, God, creator of the universe, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, all that there is, holy, holy, holy God. Lord, may we never forget. God, may we always operate in that reverential fear that at any moment your glorious power could invade this room, that at any moment your glorious power could change a situation in ways we don't understand. But God, may we always operate in you, from you. Holy Spirit, I just thank you. Lord, I thank you that that you were here this morning, that you met us where we were at. Lord, we are so privileged to be able to come and to meet with you, that we can stand in your presence. God, that you allow us to recline at the table with you. That is such a privilege. And we don't take it lightly, Lord God. We honor and respect you and we glorify your name. Lord, help us to understand the difference between how close you are and how powerful and glorious you are, Jesus. Lord, we declare your kingship in this house. We declare your kingship in this city and we declare your kingship in this nation. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, we submit to you. We love you. We honor you, Jesus. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.